Good morning, Grace. I'm Scott Rosencrans. My wife, Laura, and I have been at Grace now for decades. That sounds like it has a lot of gravity to it, decades. But I was counting up the years, and I think we're at 20 years now. Uh, if you are visiting with us, we are so glad to have you here. We hope you're you feel welcomed, and we hope that you get to know some of our great people here at Grace. Uh, today, we continue in our study in the gospel according to Luke. If you want to open your Bibles up to chapter 22, we'll be there in verses 24 through 38. We've been in Luke for a long time, and as Kenny referenced, we are in the Passion Week narrative here, and towards the end of that week, Good Friday is um, uh, upon us very soon, and we are right now uh, partway through the Lord's Supper, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper, and uh, as Randy brought us to the word last week, Jesus lobs a grenade right in the middle of the table. Someone's going to betray Jesus. And um, it's a very uh, tragic, sad, intense moment. And that's uh, where we pick up today in verse 24. So follow along as I read uh, verses 24 through 38 of chapter 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So at Grace, our mission here is discipleship. We hear it every week. And we talk about engaging and evangelizing, establishing and equipping our people, all towards the end of presenting everyone mature 
in Christ. And in Luke's gospel, we get to see Jesus' last moments this week teaching his disciples. These are discipleship moments that we're witnessing in this small group context. And we see in Jesus' words and his actions and his examples signs of discipleship. For you note-takers, here's a three-point outline for today's sermon. Our deepest need, point one. Uh, Two, Jesus' great provision. And three, the faithful walk with him. And for those of you who prefer a one-point outline, here it is. The one who serves is the one who saves. Have you ever had uh, one of those moments where a word you've been using for maybe years, you realize... I never knew what that word meant. Uh, I think of the uh, classic film, Princess Bride, the word inconceivable at one point, Anigo Montoya. Uh, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? Well, I recently had uh, this uh, experience in a book I read. Uh, this is going to sound really pretentious, but I, I read a book by a contemporary French philosopher recently. I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, I don't read those types of books uh, normally. But this one, uh, this philosopher, uh, helped me redefine a word, and I I feel like it's kind of like when you buy a new car, you see it everywhere you go. I feel like this word is just in the back of my mind. And in coming to this gospel, in this passage, this word has been uh, prominent, and that word is significance. Significance. Uh, oftentimes we think of significance as being just something of great worth. Uh, And I would say that significance is one of our deep needs that we have as as humans. We we want to live lives that are significant. We want to be significant. We want to acknowledge that all human life is significant, that what we do has meaning and purpose to it. And so that's the word significance, and, and that word uh, this, this author, Chantal uh, Del Sol, pointed out something I, pretty obvious about the word, that the root of the word significance is sign or signify. And that what being significant is, if something is significant, something significant points towards something larger and greater than itself. That's what significance is. And we believe as Christians that our significance is bound up in our identity as humans who are made in the image of God. And that image is the thing we're supposed to be living lives pointing towards. That's to be our significance. Well, for our disciples, uh, these guys had left everything. They've been on the road with Jesus, ministering, ushering forth the the kingdom of God with the Lord together, their lives were signs pointing to Jesus, day in, day out, walking with him, finding their purpose and meaning in following him, putting into practice what he asked them to do. He references it at the end of today's passage. Their lives were significant. And yet, in this narrative, that the Passion Week narrative that begins with Palm Sunday, where the crowds are saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, people pointing to Jesus for who he is, 
we start to see these people peel off and their lives are no longer finding their significance in Jesus. They are falling away. And in God's plan, Jesus has to go alone to the cross. And by God's mercy, this is not the last passage we see the disciples. But this is so human, isn't it? The desire for significance and our tendency to find our significance in something other than what we were made to find our significance in. And that's where we see the disciples at the beginning of this passage. It starts, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, we don't get all the details. We only get the details that Luke wants us to get for his purposes, and and this uh, sentence, this verse, happens immediately after them questioning who would be the one to betray. Uh, we can assume, if we piece together the us- other gospel accounts, that Judas is no longer in the room. He's certainly not trying to argue that he's the greatest at this point, right? So uh, Judas is less in the room. We have the 11, and there could be a number of reasons why they're trying to say they're the greatest, right? It could be just the ancient Near Eastern tradition of seating arrangements at a table, okay? Who's at Jesus' right hand? Who's at Jesus' left hand? Uh, We don't really do that anymore unless you have children and you're going to the car and someone calls shotgun, right? Um, The disciples are doing some version of that, shotgun. I'm I'm in the front seat, okay? Um, That's one possibility. Another possibility is that uh, they are trying to react, they're reacting maybe defensively to this idea that one one amongst them has uh, committed this betrayal or is committing this betrayal. And they want to distance themselves from that, and one way to do that is to talk about your accomplishments, your your self-worth, your what you've done for Jesus. And of course, we've seen that elsewhere in the Gospels, haven't we, okay? So we don't get the reason, but the bottom line is Uh, they could have responded very differently to this news that Jesus would be be betrayed, but they didn't. They respond by turning inward. Lives no longer devoted to something greater and bigger than them, but lives uh, characterized by self-justification. Okay? Now, uh, I want to offer just a quick uh, illustration drawn from my own life. So I enjoy the burden of being a pool owner, okay? Some of you share that burden. Um, And uh, this week, my pool had problems. So I spent uh, quite a significant amount of money going around getting parts to fix this thing. And twice I heard a joke that I've never heard in my 18 years of pool ownership. And the joke is this, what do you call a hole in the ground in your backyard that you throw money into? A swimming pool, okay? That's the joke. Well, I want to redeem that joke a little bit here uh, on behalf of the disciples and us. Um, I was thinking about uh, John Calvin and his comment that our hearts are idol factories, that we want to point to anything but God for worth, for significance. And, uh, you know, I I came up with this. Try it out on you. Um, What do you call a hole in your soul that you pour idols into, the human heart. That's our sinful condition. 
our sinful condition is to, uh, in our sin nature, point away from our significance in God and find anything else for our worth, whether it's actually literally bowing down to another idol, as people still do today in parts of the world, or something more familiar, uh, wrapping up our significance and our identity and our worth in the degrees we have, the jobs we have, how we handle our money, um, how our kids are doing, um, who we're dating or not dating, um, how things are going circumstantially. Uh, all of these things can be opportunities. And don't get me wrong, many of these things are good things that God meant for us to enjoy, but our hearts want to move away from that. And we see this in the disciples today, in this simple verse that they are groping for justification and uh, meaning and significance in themselves. Who is to be the greatest? And we actually see this later uh, in verse 33. I'm going to be not going through the narrative in chronological order. I'm going to be bouncing around, but if we skip down to when Jesus predicts Peter's denial, Peter's response is one also of self-justification. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's just heard that he's going to uh, uh, deny Jesus. He wants to self-justify. Again, he could have responded with weeping that this would be the case. He could have responded with asking the Lord to explain how this could possibly be. But no, it's, it's a response of self-justification. We have needs for significance and self-justification, but if we are not looking to the permanent only source of significance and the only source of justification, that's Jesus. Uh, it's all for naught. It's all a vapor. Now, the disciples, to be fair, if you look in all the Gospels and even the Gospel of Luke, they don't see things clearly at this point. They don't understand the significance of Jesus's uh, going to the cross, his path that would lead to his death. They, they kind of ignore it. They dismiss it. They don't reference it. My guess is they don't know what to do with it. They don't understand it. And of course, they're not the only ones who have had this experience. A lot of people, when they hear the gospel, want to dis uh, distance themselves from it. They want to uh, dismiss it. So I want to talk now about the good news. The good news is that Jesus provides a way and a source of significance. And we see here in this passage that Jesus provides in a few different ways. Let's look at verses 25 through 27 to see the first way that Jesus provides for us by serving us. Picking up from verse 25, Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and let the leader, as, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? 
Jesus could have responded in a number of ways uh, to his disciples. I would call, call this response one of gentle rebuke. Uh, Jesus, again, knows what's before him. And he knows that these disciples have divided hearts. He knows that they have limited information. He knows that they are like sheep who are, are prone to go astray. But he uses this opportunity to teach them, to disciple them, to continue with them. So, Jesus contrasts the disciples with the kings of the Gentiles, the benefactors. Who would these people be? Well, <clears throat> this is not unfamiliar. These kinds of people are still around. They're people with great wealth, political influence, and they use their wealth and their influence to do great things. They might build buildings. Um, they might uh, commission great works of art. They might start foundations that do uh, projects for human good. And often what happens is in doing these good works, they garner more political power and influence, and that converts into the opportunity for more uh, economic growth for themselves. And it's a cycle. And um, if you can get on that flywheel as a benefactor, that's a pretty good thing. I do good, people like me, and I end up having more opportunity for myself. Uh, all the glory, lots of wealth, what a wonderful thing. Well, Jesus says, you're not supposed to be like that. Not so with you. And then he offers three examples of the same thing. Now, to our modern uh, ears, it might seem, well, like, this is a little bit much. Why would Jesus give us three examples? Well, if you've been reading the Bible for long, you know that God does this. God repeats himself in lots of different ways to get a point across. He'll do it again and again. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in uh, repeated stories in different books. Same story. We have four Gospels. Well, Jesus wants them to know that the greatest among them is the person who serves. And Jesus is the one who serves. We've seen this even in Luke several times, actually. If we go all the way back to chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is the neighbor? Who's the good neighbor? Who's the one who loves God and loves man? Well, it's the Samaritan. It's the uh, cultural other, the person on the lower end of the uh, social spectrum. Or three weeks ago, with the, uh, in chapter 21, uh, the widow who gives her all uh, to the offering of the temple. And she's the one who receives praise. Again, Jesus is saying again and again, in his economy, uh, God's economy, the variable that shows greatness is the humble servant. And of course, Jesus says, as Kenny referenced earlier in wor worship, that he is the humble servant. He's the one who serves. I am the one who serves. Consider all the I am statements in the uh, New Testament. Jesus is the bread of life, the true vine, the way, truth, and life. These lofty, beautiful statements that all point to an aspect of who the Lord is. This one doesn't usually make the list. It's characteristically humble. I am the one 
who serves. And yet, in the study of the Bible, in the study of theology, being a servant isn't just something Jesus does to accomplish God's purposes in the world. It's really core to Jesus' identity. It's who he is as God. In creation, Kenny referenced uh, Colossians 1 during worship. Jesus is creating everything. Uh, Paul says, by a word of his power. Uh, But he's doing that to accomplish the will of the Father. In our next chapter, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will say, not my will, but thy will be done. That's a servant's heart. It's core to who he is with God, and it's core with who he is to mankind. If you look back at chapter 4 of Luke, when Jesus inaugurates his ministry, he quotes from Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recover sight of the blind, uh, to set the oppressed free. This is the year of the Lord's favor. And all of that is accomplished through Jesus' service to the world. It's a beautiful and it's a staggering thing. Jesus, the eternal son, the creator of all things, at core has a heart to serve, to serve you, to serve me, to serve the world. Jesus says that his disciples, we can infer his disciples are supposed to do this too. If we want our lives to signify and point to the Lord, we need to be those who point in service. It's a really beautiful thing to be able to serve uh, mankind. A really beautiful thing. The Bible teaches that serving your neighbor is like serving God. That's very familiar, right? Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Don't let the familiarity of that statement uh, overshadow how profound that is. Your neighbor, loving your neighbor is like loving God. Wow. I mean, I have great neighbors. But there's, there's a gulf between God and neighbor in many, many ways. And yet my neighbors bear the image of God. And to love them is to love God. There's a beautiful conversion that takes place. Jesus is serving us is a way of glorifying his Father. Our being disciples pointing to him by serving uh, our neighbors and the church is like serving God. We see this. uh, We don't have time to uh, study this now, but in your grace groups, Matthew 25 would be a great place to go. That Jesus has this expectation that we would be those who serve. He says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful passage. It's also a chilling passage because it's the parable of the sheep and goats, and he says, uh, there, there is a category of people who say, Lord, uh, we didn't know these things. And, and Jesus, Jesus says, I, I never knew you. A category of person who doesn't serve, who calls Jesus Lord, 
and Jesus doesn't know them. So, I want to ask, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? What would this mean for our church? And really quickly, I just want to uh, boast in Christ about uh, some beautiful things I see concerning Christian service at Grace. Um, I was talking to a couple of men in our church about this uh, sermon, my preparation, and I started talking about uh, one of our members saying, I don't know if I should say the person's name. They said, say say a name. This is Luke Shackelford. If you guys know Luke Shackelford, he's a beautiful picture of Christian service. He uh, serves uh, in in leading a grace group. He leads a a core group. And those of you who go on vacation know um, Luke's secret menu item service, okay? I I don't think I can say it because he might never live at home, but uh, he serves families in a unique way when they go on vacation. Ask him about it. Um, But what I love about this example of service is it's from the heart, and Luke has thought about his resources and how he can steward those resources. He's in a situation where he can go and house it for families, Um, He is in a situation where he has made the time where he can uh, lead small groups, uh, even multiple small groups in our church. And we all have resources. Uh, We may, they may be abundant or scarce, but we all have time. We all have money. Uh, We all have gifts or skills and ability. And we have energy. And depending on your place in life, you may have more or less of any of those, but those are resources the Lord has given us that we can steward for service. And we can do that in the good times and in the hard times. Another person I want to boast about who's just one of my heroes in the faith is Doris Robbins. A lot of you, I'm sure, knew Doris well. She and Wally made their mark on the church for the years they were here. She passed away. And uh, during uh, COVID, she became a shut-in because she was in a vulnerable group. Wally uh, was uh, in decline as well. And uh, Doris's world got really small. And when Wally passed, her world got even smaller. And so she didn't have as much access to people. Um, and yet she kept in touch with people and she had a beautiful ministry of prayer. And uh, I'd visit her, she'd talk about at night, she'd go up to her window and pray for all the neighbors down the street. And I was like, yes, because I'm one of the neighbors down the street. (laughs) Um, And you know, I don't know the theology about whether people have passed still pray for us or not, but I'm really hoping they do because I have no doubt she still is. Um, But, Doris was a beautiful picture of thinking about the resources she had even in her time of decline and suffering and praying. And the beautiful thing is this resulted in a, this life of service and ministry resulted in a life that pointed to Christ. And whenever you would report on how someone was doing to Doris, she would always say some version of all glory be to God, all glory be to Christ this service and this prayer ministry that Doris had converted into a beautiful life that was significant, pointing to the Lord. And of course, those of you who know Doris could confirm that. A beautiful thing. 
And so I want to talk a little bit about prayer, because this comes up in our passage as well, with Jesus praying for Simon Peter, okay? So if we want to look back up at uh, verse 31, Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There are very few uh, places in the Bible where you see the repetition of a uh, first uh, uh, name of someone or some place. When it happens, it's a stylistic device used um, in the Hebrew language that signals deep uh, care, concern, grief, sorrow. It's, an exp- it's a deep expression of emotion. Think David when he uh, sees his dead son Absalom. Absalom, Absalom. Think Jesus when he's weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We see this again in this passage. Simon, Simon. And then Jesus pulls back the veil on the spiritual world. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That you is a collective you. It's plural referring to all uh, the disciples. And let me unpack this image just really quickly because oftentimes we think wheat, we think separating the good from the bad, the grain from the chaff. Uh, That's pushing this image too far. It's really just an image of a a kind of sifting that usually women would do. They'd have these large, wide baskets with wheat, and they would just shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it. And uh, as they do that, it's kind of a violent action, uh, the wheat and chaff would separate. And so that's the image there. But the image there really is something like Satan wants to shake and break you guys. He wants to shake you up and break you, but I prayed for you. So there's a lot that can be said about this, but what I really want to focus on is the beauty that Jesus uh, prays for his disciples. Jesus' first weapon here is uh, prayer. That's the first thing he goes to when he wants to defend his disciples from spiritual attack. Jesus intercedes on behalf of his disciples to prevent Satan, in this case, from entering them as, they would, as he did Judas. Now, this ties back to the Lord's Supper. One of Jesus' roles in salvation history is as the high priest. Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who offers the sacrifice uh, for the people. The high priest had another role. The high priest was also an intercessor, and he would pray for the people. And the priest, by the way, was the class, uh, the family, the tribe that was the servant tribe. They existed to make the sacrificial system work to serve the other 11 tribes that they might be holy and might be uh, able to be righteous before God. And so we see here uh, Jesus doing his role of intercession. And in 1 John 2, 1, we see that 
Jesus today is our advocate as well. In Hebrews 7, we see that Jesus still offers intercession for us as well. And so you and I both benefit from this same ministry of service that Jesus had today. If you are in Christ, he is interceding for you before the Father. He is doing that. He, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Jesus hears our prayers. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited for uh, prayer. You know, prayer is a, a unique way of serving. And by the way, I know because I see the um, prayer, th I'm on the prayer chain and I see the threads, we are a praying church. We have lots of people who are deeply devoted to ministering in this way. And, and you may not see it. It's not just up um, at the side of the platform after service. We have a lot of prayer going on. Our grace groups are praying. We have partners in prayer. We have Tuesday morning prayer. But I want to just ask you to reflect, how is your prayer life? What would it mean for you to enter into intercessory prayer on someone else's behalf? Think of the unsaved in your family. And I know we have people who have been praying for unsaved family members for decades, praying and fasting. I know there are those among us doing that. But we see a powerful example in Jesus. And of course, we know if we go over to John's testimony about this night, he gives us a much more expansive view of Jesus' prayer life. But Jesus' prayer works, too. He does restore Peter as um, we will see this unfold in, in Jesus' ministry. And lastly, I want to talk about Jesus' ultimate work, his work on the cross. Over in uh, verse 37, when Jesus is giving these kind of final discipling words, uh, he quotes from Isaiah 53, which is oftentimes uh, referred to as the song of the suffering servant a very f familiar passage, and Jesus quotes part of that, and he says, he will be numbered with the transgressors. This is a reference to going to the cross and being between the two thieves on the cross. Uh, that's the fulfillment of this. But Jesus went to the cross. Jesus says, this has to be fulfilled in me. This is fulfilled. Jesus' ultimate service to you and to me is his willingness to give his life on our behalf. Um, we cannot gin up holiness. We cannot uh, justify ourselves. We can point to all of our accomplishments and they're all for naught because they pale in comparison to the righteous demands that Jesus satisfies and that God demands of us. Jesus served you and served me by taking on a burden taking off the burden of our guilt and our sin and taking it to the cross and being willing to die uh, for us and take our punishment. That's his ultimate act of service that's available to you and to me today uh, who call on his name to be saved, who by faith trust in Jesus Christ for his salvation. So, the disciples, of course, 
don't understand all of this. I'm sure they're overwhelmed, to say the least. Uh, they probably don't know exactly what to, to think. In fact, the very next response we get from them is Jesus is uh, talking about what's to come, trying to prepare them for the future, and you know they're trying to pick up on this. What do I buy? What do I sell? What did I do? Oh, oh wait a second. We have two swords. Is that enough? They're just trying to grasp onto anything to understand what's going on. They don't know fully yet uh, what's going on. The last thing that Jesus offers, though, or that I want to focus on, is to give us an account of the path of discipleship, what it means to walk in the path of Jesus. There's a great children's book called Same, Same, But Different. Anyone ever seen that book, Same, Same, But Different? It's a great children's book. It's a pen pal book. A, a boy in America is writing to a boy in India, and they're back and forth about talking about what they eat or how they play or what their family is. And the point of the book is the title of the book, okay? There's so much that is the same about human experience, but there's some that's different. And so when we think of the path of discipleship, there's obviously some differences here. I've referenced that the, the disciples, uh, for instance, don't have the full revelation of what happens to Jesus yet. They don't understand it. The, the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen upon them. They haven't been on the road to Emmaus yet to have all of this put together that we benefit from. But what they do have is Jesus right there with them. They have the experience of walking with him. Um, and another difference is that the path of discipleship, Jesus says early in the passage that you are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials. Okay? Um, that is uh, an important part of discipleship. And here, particularly, these disciples get a unique role in the judgment and the ushering in of Jesus' kingdom. He says, you'll be on thrones and you will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So my guess is when the disciples are thinking, who's the greatest, who's sitting in the uh, you know, the right seat in this upper room, they weren't prepared to hear, uh, you know what, you've stayed with me in my trials. You are going to receive something so much greater than you could ever imagine um, in the future. So there are some differences in terms of the particular rewards that they might get, but there's a lot of same, same here. Being a disciple, the path of discipleship for you and for me, is staying with Jesus in his trials. Staying with him in his trials. And some of us in this room know this deeply with uh, uh, looking death in the faith kind, face kinds of trials, deep faith kinds of trials, um, being denied by family kinds of trials, suffering persecution kinds of trials, taking up one's cross daily kinds of trials to follow him. But that is the path of discipleship. It's not being victorious on our own merit, but it is staying with him, enduring the trials as we go through the trials. And our trials, because we are in him, are Jesus' trials as well. And then lastly, he also wants to prepare towards the end of our passage that things might be different for them. Now, in the immediate context, Jesus is going to die. They aren't going to understand it. 
Jesus uh, is public enemy number one. The Jewish leaders and the Roman uh, leaders have conspired against him. We will see this unfold. And there's a sense in which the disciples are going to be associated with Christ and it's gonna be a dangerous situation. So, hey, be thoughtful. Make sure you have the resources you need, okay? And there's a sense where, well, we don't experience that. But I would say this advice is actually important advice for us today. Our uh, grace partner this week, Lee Yadev, he knows what this means. He grew up in a place where he suffered persecution. Then he went to another place where he suffered more persecution. And in America, he doesn't suffer the same kind of persecution. But our missionaries know this. How often do we see our missionaries and we get the region of the world they're in, or we get their first initials, or we get their first names but not their last names? That's all because there are people that we support as a church, people that we're in relationship, a lot of you support them individually, who are living this life where they have to be mindful of their resources. When Jesus first sent his disciples out, they were largely welcomed with the good news. Jesus knows that it's not necessarily the case that the good news will be welcomed. The good news might be met with hostility. That's possible. That happens. And that could happen to us. We happen to live in a time and place where uh, relative to so many other places, um, we feel very safe. But this is for us too. We need to be thoughtful and strategic about our resources not expecting that the world will accept the good news of the gospel and the kingdom. That can't be our expectation, and we need to be willing and ready for that. There is this curious detail about the sword. It's kind of the most conspicuous detail. I don't want to go too much into it, but uh, commentators largely think that Jesus wasn't saying, hey, in a few verses, one of you is going to have the opportunity to give a guy an ear pendectomy and, you know, um, not, not going there, okay? Uh, it's much more likely that Jesus is using this as a symbol for, hey, be on the guard, be ready, be on the defense, okay? So kind of like if, you know, you knew someone was after someone, you say, hey, you got a target on your back. Well, that wouldn't necessarily literally mean you got a target on your back, but you, you use that kind of uh, martial language to say, be prepared. And of course, it's also possible that, hey, you're out, you're, you're um, dispersed, you're homeless, it, it might be wise to have a sword with you, but they grab onto that. Oh, we have two swords, is this enough? Of course, they're ready, right? Let's, let's get swords. That's, that's the good thing. And Jesus' final words, it's kind of like conversation over. is kind of like, that's enough, okay? They're not getting it, okay? Um, that seems to be a, a, a possible tone here, okay, as we finish up this passage. I want to close with this. Peter says to Jesus to justify himself, I'm willing to go, I'm willing to, go to prison and to die for you. He wasn't wrong. He did go to prison for Jesus. And he did die for Jesus. Something happened in these disciples' lives where right now we see the turn inward, the focus on self, lives not signifying God. And something happened that turned it all around.
And what happened is eventually they did understand. They did understand that the good news, the greatest news that's ever happened of great joy for all people was for them. And as a consequence of that, they were able to live lives that followed Christ, that followed in his path and his way, lives of sacrificial service to the glory of God, even to the death. May, may these disciples and their ultimate trajectory be ours as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that we get to gather around your word today. Um, we pray that your Holy Spirit would embed your word in our hearts, that we would be those who would, by your grace, uh, through faith, Lord, uh, offer our lives as acceptable sacrifices to you. Uh, Lord, in this church, would you help us to love and care for others well in a way that honors your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.